Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and this week, the insanity of dealing with infertility. I'm Shana Roth, producer for The Waves. I wanted to talk about IVF and infertility because it's something my husband and I have dealt with for about five years now, and something that about 10% of women in the U.S. of childbearing age struggle with as well. So here's my experience with it. We wanted two kids. That was always the dream, maybe more, but at least two. And when we finally got pregnant after our second IVF transfer, we assumed, well, it worked once. Whatever wasn't working was fixed. And we thought for sure our third and final embryo would work. And we'd finally be off this roller coaster. We gave the embryo a nickname. We had the embryo's picture on our fridge. We thought the embryo would be a girl. But the next round of IVF didn't work. Now, here we are, out of embryos. We've been trying IUI, which is intrauterine insemination, a procedure that's less invasive than IVF, where they essentially pump you full of hormones, and when the time is right, place your partner's sperm directly into the uterus using a catheter. So far, we've been through three rounds of that. The first one actually worked, but I had a miscarriage after a week. And now we are in the middle of deciding what to do next. It is an incredibly isolating and lonely experience. And today, I just wanted to feel a little less alone in the world. And I wanted other people who are going through this to maybe feel a little less alone as well. So when we come back from the break, I'm going to talk to Slate's very own Dear Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris, about her own journey to get pregnant via IVF. We're going to talk about the one thing she wished she knew about infertility when she was younger, and she's going to give some advice for how to cope with the uncertainty of infertility treatments. Later in the show, I'll talk with author Pamela Mahoney-Sigdenis about the ethics of the infertility industry, what to say to a friend who's going through treatments, and what it means to be an IVF survivor. Whether you're trying to get pregnant, hope to one day be pregnant, or maybe dislike babies as a concept, but want to understand how a medical industry keeps potential parents in its very expensive grip, keep listening. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to The Waves. A few weeks ago, we put a call out to listeners and Slate staff, asking them to tell us about their experiences with IVF. Here's some of their stories. Slate Plus members can also hear more in our Plus segment. Hello. Responding to the Instagram post about having done IVF. Hey, it's Lizzie O'Leary, the host of Slate's podcast, What Next TPD. I did IVF. Hi, my name is Claire, and I saw a post about submitting a story about my experience through IVF 
It was one of the hardest things that I have ever done in my life, and I have been through a lot of hard stuff. I did do IVF. I had a very good experience with it, probably very different from a lot of people, what they have to go through. I frankly always knew I was going to have to. I have severe endometriosis. I've had five endometriosis surgeries. So in a weird way, I never had to agonize about the decision to do IVF. It was just something I knew was going to have to happen if I wanted to have a kid. I decided to do it about after about a year of trying without success. It was a, an emotional and financial burden that I never expected that I would go through. I wish I'd known before I started that it's a numbers game. It's not a referendum on you. I called up my parents and my in-laws and I said, how badly do you want grandchildren? <laughs> and they were very generous to chip in a bit to help start my family. That year leading up to the decision was obviously very difficult. I want to share my story because I know it's a little bit taboo, but I think that, you know, it's important to normalize it. And the more people that can hear stories about it, you know, maybe they can do it themselves, or if they have a friend going through it, they can be a little bit more empathetic because, as I said, it was the hardest thing that I ever went through. You will find your way through it, no matter what happens. I don't think I really understood what it meant to feel isolated until I started struggling with infertility. Getting pregnant, trying to get pregnant, that alone is something that people don't really talk about. It's just not really part of our culture. But it is an expectation. And when you can't get pregnant or your spouse can't get pregnant, you really start to feel that you are on an island alone. But I've found that when I start to open up with some people... I find even more people struggling with infertility than I thought. And that includes people right here at Slate and our very own Dear Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Hi, Janae. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Janae, let's start with your IVF infertility journey. I hate that word journey. Me too. I, don't, I can't think of it. <laughs> it's terrible. But what has your background been with all of this? Sure. So I knew you were going to ask me this and I immediately became self-conscious because the whole story is so long and I didn't want to tell this endless story with tons of boring medical details, but I'm also self-conscious about making it seem too quick and easy because it was not. I got married in 2017. I did the whole thing of, oh, I just want to enjoy being married for a year and not worry about getting pregnant. And I'm sure it will be easy because look around, tens of women get pregnant well into their 40s. And I did become pregnant in 2019, had a miscarriage um, at 38, and got pregnant again in late 2019 and had another miscarriage. And my doctor said testing revealed that both of them were due to chromosomal abnormalities, specifically trisomy 18, which is like just a very common thing as you get older and your eggs get older. Um, it doesn't mean that it'll happen every time, but it's just more common in older women. So I can't say that I was officially like declared infertile, but my OB suggested that I was kind of running out of time to get pregnant and I didn't have a lot of time to waste having more miscarriages. 
So that's why she sent me to do IVF. Um, so I went to my local fertility clinic. I did all the 10,000 tests they required. Um, and just as I finished all those tests, the pandemic hit and they shut down. So they were closed for three months, got back in there, ended up doing a retrieval in July 2020. In that retrieval, I did get one normal embryo out of six, but my doctor didn't think that was really what we expected. She had hoped for more. So she suggested that I go get checked for endometriosis, which it turned out I had horribly. Another side note, nobody cares about these things until you can't get pregnant. Like nobody cared. (laughs) Nobody cared that I had horrible cramps my whole life and always complained. You can go to your OB from the time you're 16 and be like, hey, doc, it really, 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 really hurts once a month when I'm on my period for like a few days. Like I can't get out of bed. And I'm just like, okay. But as soon as you're like, oh, we're we're trying to have kids and it's not working. Yeah. We should check you for anything. Suddenly they want to check everything. And lo and behold, it was stage four and it was really severe. And like kind of on like every organ, like it was really, really bad. So they cleared that up along with a fibroid that was also discovered. I ended up having another retrieval in November 2020. That time I got three good embryos. I did have to wait a while to like recover from that surgery before the transfer, which is for those who don't know the part where they put the embryo in and you get pregnant. So I did that in July 2021 and I'm now seven and a half months pregnant. I love a success story. I mean, it it feels weird to call it a success story because it's so hard to get to that point. It was a very long journey with um, what felt like a lot of setbacks. But even so, I know that it was so much smoother and easier than what a lot of people deal with. Um, Many women go through like five or ten rounds and never get one good embryo to use or try five or ten transfers and it never works. I think that's probably the biggest misconception about IVF from people who haven't been through it is that it's just kind of a quick scientific way to get a baby. Um, And in (laughs) fact, when you're going through it, like the assumption is like, I can't do this by myself. And this has like, I don't want to put out a number because I don't know the exact percentage, but this has a certain chance of working, but also a really good chance of not working. I mean, it's always a lot lower than you think it's going to be. And then they start factoring in, well, your age and here's some other things. And the fact that we don't know, like in my case, they have no idea what has caused my inability to have kids. (laughs) And that's when they bring out like the charts. If you do two transfers, you get the third one free or you get the, the, (laughs) you know, it, it starts to feel like you're buying a used car or something. Like they're like, we'll throw in, you know. Yeah. Embryo glue or something. Yeah. Yeah. It gets really weird. And we want to have another kid and we're doing IUI. We've done it three times. Uh, I've had one miscarriage. So that process has been really challenging. And so it's, you mentioned how doing multiple retrievals in the hope of doing, of getting more and more embryos and how there's a lot of women who do transfer after transfer with no success, who do retrieval after retrieval and don't get those embryos. And it's, it's hard to figure out when do we stop trying to create this family that we've been dreaming of. Yeah. And the big thing you hear in the IVF community is it only takes one or you only need one, meaning like one good egg in one good month, but it can be really hard to get that one. And it's hard to know when to be realistic about the chance that it might not happen and when to just keep trying because it could always happen the next month. Janae, you are Slate's dear Prudy. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is 
what advice do you have for women that are going through any stage of infertility? Because there's multiple stages of it. There's trying and failing. Then there's realizing you're infertile. Then there's deciding if you're going to take more measures. Then there's doing those measures. I think the advice that I always want to kind of shout from the rooftops, um, but feel very self-conscious about giving because it's really a sensitive topic is actually appropriate for women who have not thought about infertility yet. I just always want to tell people to be aware of how your fertility decreases with age. And like I said, this is sensitive because I'm aware that it can feel like fear-mongering, especially toward women. And it can feel like putting a lot of pressure on women who may not have a whole lot of control over their situations. But I just personally wish I had known that after 35, it becomes a lot more difficult to get pregnant, especially without having miscarriages on your way there, or to get pregnant for free. I think based on what I saw in the media and some sort of encouraging articles about how the numbers aren't that bad for older women, I truly believed that basically until I was in menopause, you know, certainly until I was 40-something, that this would be relatively easy And I also thought that, you know, I take good care of myself and I drink a lot of water and I get good sleep. So it'll be even easier for me than other people. Um, Breaking news, like your eggs don't know about any of that. They they do not care. (laughs) They only know how old they are. I think there needs to be more of a conversation about just raising awareness about that. And I don't know the answer when it comes to how to do it without fear mongering or without putting too much pressure on women, but on a one-on-one basis. I do talk to my younger friends and tell them, like, you should start thinking about this. If your job covers egg freezing, which some great insurance plans do, it would be a wonderful option. So you don't have to worry about it later. But once you're actually going through it, I think, again, I would give the advice that it's not a guaranteed success story. You have to look at it as something that's kind of a wonderful option that science has provided to provide some possibilities and some hope. But if it doesn't work out for you, um, that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you or that you've done something wrong. The science is like very much evolving. Different clinics are different and all of our bodies are different. So it's really not one size fits all. Um, On a more practical level, it's really hard to balance all this stuff with life and work. Um, I was lucky to work from home the entire time and to have a demanding but pretty flexible job, you have to go to the clinic all the time, often on very short notice. (laughs) Um, And there's lots of times when because of all the hormones, you don't feel great. And the clinic is not worried about your job schedule at all. They're just like, hey, come in at 8.15 tomorrow morning. We're going to get more into some of the finances of how this stuff is priced out in the next segment. But before I let you go, I wanted to ask you about your feelings on paying for this stuff. It's hard to go through this as it is. And then it becomes even harder to figure out where you're going to get the money from to deal with insurance, having to deal with them, to get them to cover it, and them yelling at you that you need a pre-authorization and that they didn't get this form or that form. It makes it all so much more difficult. I want women and people who are going into this to know that it's not just going to be the stress of trying to have a baby. It's going to be the stress of dealing with all these other forces financially that don't care about what you're going through. I'll say one of the saddest and most infuriating moments for me was 
sort of before the IVF journey formally started when I had a miscarriage and had to have a DNC, which is a procedure that you have afterwards, I received this all these bills that were much more than I expected for that. And one of them was for the actual appointment where I learned that I had a miscarriage. And the reason I received this huge bill was that my insurance covered prenatal care, but they were like, oh, that was no longer prenatal care. That was something else because you weren't pregnant anymore. So therefore, like here, it was a different billing code. And it just felt like such a slap in the face that not only did this terrible thing happen, but I had to pay more for it. When it comes to the cost of IVF itself, I know that there are some resources like grants from different foundations and assistance, but you know, the world is terrible. This is not the kind of thing you can go crowdfund for. There are people who need food. Nobody wants to help you have a baby when they're thinking in the back of their mind, well, you don't really need a baby and you could always adopt. You're just being selfish. It's really overwhelming. It feels very different trying for a second kid. I feel like everybody would just be like, well, you have a kid. You should be happy. That's fine. Like, you got it. You're good. And, like, the emotional difference between having no kids and ha- trying to have a second kid is is huge. But there is still so much going on. And the stakes still just feel so high. And it just gets so isolating because when you're trying to figure all this out, it's so easy for other people to just be like, why aren't you just adopting? Well, newsflash, adoption is also incredibly expensive and also has, you know, a lot of emotional turmoil attached to it. And it's just, it's really hard to navigate and it just feels so isolating. And that would be another piece um, going back to the advice you asked me to give. I think people going through this should be strategic about what they share and who they share it with. Just because there's so much um, unsolicited, weird, unhelpful, upsetting feedback that people have. I found myself annoyed when people said, oh, IVF, exciting. And I was like, it's not not exciting. Like the status is that I can't have a baby and I have like whatever, a 30 or 40 percent chance of maybe being able to. That's not exciting any more than like having cancer and being in a clinical trial that gives you a little bit of hope is exciting. It's wonderful that it's there. It's not something that anyone's really feeling great about. And then a lot of people get the, why don't you adopt? So just think about what you can handle emotionally in terms of feedback and share strategically based on that. And I think that's a good reason for keeping the quote-unquote journey private because you're already going to be so stressed and so vulnerable and you don't want to invite input that will make that even more intense. Well, hopefully this conversation and all of your wonderful advice will bring some comfort and catharsis to some listeners that are that are going through this and hopefully educate others who, who aren't. I hope so. When we come back, I'm going to talk with Pamela Mahoney-Sigdenis, about the ethics of the baby-making business. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. 
Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. For a while now, I've been trying to sort out just how I feel about this entire process. What exactly it means when the treatments fail? Is there a better way to get through it? Should I talk to more people? Join one of those Facebook groups? I am incredibly lucky to have a husband that I can lean on and who is 100% a partner in all of this. But still... Is there a better way to cope than constantly putting myself together with some tape and old glue? And at what point will I know, will we know, that enough is enough? Pamela Mahoney-Sigdenis is the author of Silent Sorority and an article titled An IVF Survivor Unravels Fertility Industry Narratives. Her work is devoted to shining light on the personal traumas caused by infertility and reproductive technology failures. She tried IVF herself, and it didn't work. And now she's here to try to help me sort all of this out. Pamela, welcome to The Waves. Thank you. It's great to to be here with you. One of the things that I have noticed going through infertility, and one of the things that I've been most confused about and have had difficulty separating out, is that it is a doctor's office, but it is also very much a business. And it feels like when you're there, there's this sort of push to do IVF, which is the most drastic and expensive thing that you can do to try and get a child. And I never felt like there was a whole lot of effort done toward diagnosis. Initially, my gynecologist did a bunch of tests and then my infertility specialist did some tests. But they stopped doing those, even though we were still in the system. And most recently, I had another failed IUI, and the nurse said, your doctor recommends maybe try another IUI, and then we'll talk about IVF again. How do you handle that sort of push-pull and deal with that sort of balancing act of this is a doctor's office, but it's a business? Can you help me wrap my mind around that? Or am I the only one struggling with sort of justifying those two things? No, no, actually, it's virtually impossible to separate the medical from the from the market forces. And unfortunately, if I can just jump back to the 80s for a minute, there was actually some real uh, work done at the congressional level to try to understand 
how is it that these clinics, and at the time in 1992, there were there were over 150 operating and only half had actually succeeded in helping a couple produce a baby. So they decided we really need to take a closer look at this. And there were folks at the House committees and small business looking at this. The Senate uh, Labor and Human Resources Group looked at it. The Federal Trade Commission looked at it. And all three of them concluded, this is the wild, wild west. So in 1992, there was a lot of effort to try to bring together the medical, scientific, and, and legislative forces to bring some standards, to establish some performance protocols. And unfortunately, the market forces won. Uh, there were a number of lobbying efforts made to take a hands-off approach to how clinics operated. And even today, the over 400 clinics that exist only get their labs visited once every two years to see if there's any performance standard. In your piece, you said, I longed to be an IVF survivor, not a captive. And that is something that hit me so hard because when you're going through this, you are hoping for not just a child, but for this vision of your future that you had planned for who knows how long. And it is so hard to let that go, to let go of that idea of maybe who you thought you were going to be, what you thought your family was going to look like. And so it's so easy for these clinics to just be like, okay, this didn't work. We're just going to schedule for your next round and your next round and your next round. And it and it becomes so hard to get out of that cycle. And to me, it feels like these clinics don't always do enough with being honest with their patients about the likelihood of success. You know, they throw numbers and percentages at you, which are hard to understand and to really figure out, you know, what exactly does this mean in terms of am I going to get a baby or how likely is it that I'll get a baby? It feels like they're very foggy with telling people how likely is it for me to get a baby? Yeah, it, it, it is emotionally traumatizing. And in fact, the diagnosis of infertility is considered one of the top three stressors. Um, and you can imagine when you have a really significant diagnosis like infertility, it's a form of death. There's this idea for the very first time that you realize your reproductive organs may not operate as they're supposed to, and that may never get fixed. It's it's a real stunning realization. And unfortunately, the way the fertility clinics are set up is they're, they're like a conveyor belt. You know, they have one a patient appointment right after another, and they compartmentalize a lot. For them, all this information is intuitive, but each patient is hearing this for the first time. And unfortunately, there is such a medicalization of this very personal, intimate condition that just gets overlooked. It may well be that it's, it's, it's a level of protection for the staff that work there, because if they get emotionally involved 
it is not necessarily easy for anybody. So unfortunately, the patients get the short end of the stick. They are literally handed stacks of papers, release forms. They do a total inspection of your finances to ensure that you have the money to pay for it. And then they push you to the next step. You do not have any time to digest this really traumatizing information. I'm curious, given what we've been talking about, would you say that as currently constituted, the infertility industry is ethical? And and I guess what are changes that you would like to see made? I know that there are good practitioners in every field, so I do not want to impugn everybody, and I know individuals have been helped. I think what really needs to happen is a much deeper look at how these clinics operate, and there needs to be an independent oversight, an ethical committee that routinely asks these questions. They're they're so far ahead of us in the UK. They actually have a regulatory body that's independent. They actually do an analysis to determine what level of abuse is occurring in clinics. We do not have that in the United States. And I have been pushing for years to try to get a much better understanding of the impact of bad practice. It just seems to fall on deaf ears. Your piece, An IVF Survivor Unravels Fertility Industry Narratives, is difficult to read in a good way in that I identified with so much of it and it is very powerfully written. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to tell our listeners who probably haven't had a chance to read your piece yet, though we will link it in the show notes, a little bit about your history with IVF and with infertility. Much like most of your listeners, I took a a real sort of casual understanding of my reproductive health. I just assumed everything functioned. There was no reason to think there was any problem. So at 29, when I was looking to start a family, I went through the usual diagnostics and my my OBGYN said, you know, I don't understand why you're not getting pregnant. So let's do an HSG where they inject dye into your fallopian tubes. They were all clear. They did a number of other early tests and then immediately said, you know, there's there's no reason for you not to get pregnant. So a couple of years went by, did everything we were supposed to do, changed our diet, got as healthy as possible, and still nothing. My husband's uh, sperm test showed he had a little bit of poor morphology, which means there's a little difficulty in the formation of the sperm that might actually present a problem for penetrating an egg. But we were told that that's not a big deal. So we were pushed into another round of tests and they did an inspection of my uterus and, and realized through a laparoscopy that I had some endometriosis and I was at 32 at this time. At that point, they suggested, hey, let's clean things up and see if we can get you further along. Um, Another year went by, nothing worked. So it became time for IUI, where they time uh, intercourse, they take the sperm and they inject it directly when they think you're conceiving based on your hormone levels. That lasted a couple of years. And I, I, I don't think most listeners fully understand, unless you've been through the full IVF process, just how invasive it is. 
So we were very reluctant to move in that direction. Everything said we were unexplained. We had pretty much cleared all the low hurdles, and yet years would go by and nothing was changing. I, I knew myself that I was healthy, but there was, there, was, there was no logical way to say that IVF was the right answer because IVF was developed for fallopian tube blockages. That's what it's meant to solve. I didn't have fallopian tube blockages. So we finally, out of a sense of desperation, because we had done everything else possible, agreed to sit down and go through an IVF orientation, which was pretty horrifying when you realize the number of steps and the amount of drugs that you're inflicting, and and you don't know what the longitudinal safety and health effects are going to be of overwhelming your body with hormones. But we did go through it because at that point, we were so far in, we couldn't even see the light. And at that point, we really started to bond with the idea of becoming parents. We were very successful at egg extraction. They were able to get quite a few from me. The eggs actually fertilized really nicely. They described our embryos as beautiful and said, your children will be gorgeous. So in that sense, you really truly become attached. The bonding goes on at levels that I don't think most people fully understand. We had multiple embryo transfers, and every single one of the embryo transfers felt like we were in an alpha pregnancy because your body begins to behave like it's pregnant. And so everything about you is telling you you're pregnant. And so when the news comes in the form of a very cold and calculating phone call saying, this procedure failed, we'll need you to come in next week and schedule another appointment. There is zero acknowledgement of the tremendous loss, grief, and sadness, the trauma of feeling like you literally, someone just called you to say, your child just died. I mean, it's overwhelming. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm getting choked up. It's still still so raw. We had... um three embryos and two of them did not work. Afterwards, I felt so confused about how to feel because we knew it was a girl. We'd gotten attached to her. We gave her a nickname. We had the embryo picture up on the wall. And then she's just not there anymore. It just felt so isolating and so lonely and just confusing to go through that. It is. And, and you know, the, the thing that gets missed in a lot of this is all around you, the world has no idea what you're going through. So it can be um, something as simple as showing up at the grocery store just to pick up a few items and bumping into a woman who's pushing her baby in a stroller. And and I would have to run out of the grocery store because it was so overwhelming. I couldn't stand it. I have a vivid, I don't have a ton of memories of our IVF time. I think somehow my brain has kind of blocked out a lot of it. I, I've forgotten quite a bit of it, but I have a very vivid memory a few years ago of being in line in Meyer and seeing this little girl in a, she's wearing a little 
tutu and it was, you know, it was kid dirty and she had these like cowboy boots on and she's just like bopping along to the music in her head. And I just started crying and I just like, I had to like move away and I was just, it's, it's hard. And people look at you and they're like, what, what happened? And it's just like, it's just, it's, it's so lonely. It is very lonely and it's an intimate personal loss And there is absolutely nothing in our society today. There's no language. There's no protocol. There's no etiquette. Anytime there's a loss in most other circumstances, you know, I lost my father last year. The amount of outpouring of of support and grief with people who knew me and what I was going through was so, it was like getting a warm embrace. And when, when we went through this experience with IVF, it was literally like being shut out of the world. And I think the thing that really makes it particularly difficult is that everyone continues to act like it's on you to fix it. Keep going. Don't give up. There is no off-ramp. So you're, you feel the loss and the pain at the same time that people are you know, making the assumption that you failed and that it's it's your problem, deal with it. So I, I, I can't even, again, I, I struggle to find the words because unless you've lived it, and I know a number of women around the world who've all helped ourselves with sharing stories and making sure that we acknowledge each other and what we've lived through, um, because right now there's nothing. We are trying to figure out what our off-ramp is. That's a good term for it. We have been trying to have a second child, and we are uncomfortable with the idea of going through IVF again, but the IUI, I was pregnant for a week, and then I had a miscarriage on one of our IUIs. And I'm curious, as someone who's been through all of this, and has done IVF multiple times, what advice do you have for people who are trying to figure out their off-ramp? And I guess, do you regret any of the IVF and and other treatment that you did? Well, first, I want to acknowledge your loss, because I, I know it meant a lot to me when people would give me the support and 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 the validation of knowing that I was going through something difficult. So I, I want to say I, I really, truly do feel for you. And I, I know that it is probably going to be different for every individual who goes through IVF, how far they're willing to take it. I know that a lot of it comes back to your own emotional um, and, you know, to some extent, kind of rational understanding of where the pain threshold lives. If you feel that you have a fairly good doctor who understands what your biological challenge is, then certainly you want to have a conversation either with your primary care physician or your OBGYN to try to just understand where are the milestones for you? Is it worth one more laparoscopy? Or, you know, have you really truly identified that there is nothing that we were in the unexplained category? 
And and then you and your partner, or if you're doing it on your own, you, you just have to understand where your limits are. Put some some place markers out there for I'm willing to to try one more time, or if this is not going to get me where I want to go, maybe the difficulty of the process itself has overwhelmed to such a degree that I don't think that I can manage any further. But everyone arrives at that position for different reasons and in a different timeline. So I, I can't be totally prescriptive other than to say it was one of the most agonizing processes my husband and I ever went through. And this was 15 years ago. Pamela, thank you so much for doing this and for joining us here on The Waves. I'm always happy to answer any questions on this topic because I think there's so much need to provide much, much more transparent information about it. I can't control what happens next. I'm not sure how long we'll keep trying. Maybe the best thing I can do right now is try to process my grief. After our third transfer failed, the one we thought would be our second child, I wrote a letter to that embryo. The daughter we thought we'd have. The daughter we nicknamed M. Dear M, you were going to stay in your sister's room. She was going to move into your dad's office. The walls would have been a pinkish gray, and I had plans of a Winnie the Pooh theme. Your sister would have loved you. She's been a little starved for interactions with other kids, being a COVID baby who's never been to daycare. You would have loved her, too. She's rowdy, and right now she really loves shoes. There was so much time for adventure. I want you to know I tried, and I was so sure, so confident that you would make it. You were our last embryo of three. The first IVF transfer didn't work, but your sister did, and I was so confident you would, too. There isn't a good word or phrase for this, for what happened. When you lose a baby while pregnant, it's called a miscarriage. When you lose a child after it's born, it's called a death. But I was never actually pregnant. It just didn't work. But that doesn't sound right. It didn't work. You weren't a faulty laptop or a misguided idea. You were real. You were so, so real to us. To me. I pictured what you would look like. What the top of your head would smell like after a bath. What your favorite foods would be. The sound of your laugh. I whispered goodnight to my belly and smiled when your father gave you encouragement to stick and kissed you goodnight. We put your picture, this blurry black and white of a tiny, tiny dot against a wavy background up on the kitchen cabinet. Your sister would give it a boop and say M before bedtime. I labeled boxes of your sister's old clothes and toys in the basement just for you. For M, zero to six months clothes. We planned vacations and at the right time for you to take your first plane ride. I opened up a giant piece of my heart and arranged it just for you. I miss you, even though you were never here. Two days after we got the call that I wasn't pregnant, we lit a candle and said the mourner's prayer. It was your candle in your candle holder. 
We have bought a set, one for you and your sister, long ago for Friday night Sabbaths. Your father and I cried and hugged your sister tight. Then as we went to walk away, your sister said, bye-bye. And I struggled to stay on my feet. And while we worked to get through the days to try again, because what else is there to do? I want you to know that we will always hold a place for you. We loved you. We still love you. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by me, Shana Roth. Shannon Palace is our editorial director with June Thomas providing oversight and moral support. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.